Hey listeners of the Sweat Elite podcast, it's Matt here once again. I appreciate you tuning into yet another podcast episode and today's guest is Brian Livingston. Now of all people that I know personally or very well, I would say that Brian knows the most about the sport of running. He's a very seasoned runner himself. He's been running for over 15 years, well over 15 years. His marathon personal best of 221. 10K of 29 low. I think it's 15 or 20. I'd have to double check, but it's 29 low. He has run 66 for a half marathon, and he's been the coach of many elite and sub-elite runners over the last decade plus. He currently still coaches some sub-elite runners, and he did work for Nike for around 13 years in the US, Australia, among other places. And so he himself is from the west coast of the US. He grew up in uh, in Portland and Los Angeles. He spent some time in Australia working for Nike, uh, as well as obviously US. And he's taken a little, little bit of a break now and doing some coaching for the Berlin Track Club over in Germany. So I met Brian about 12, 13 years ago now when he was working in Australia for Nike. Uh, we did a bit of training together back then when I was a middle distance runner. And since then, Brian went on to run his personal best times of 221, 29 low, and 66 a few years after that. Um, since then, he's battled with a few injuries, and he talks quite a bit about those injuries, or the, there is one main injury that he's dealt with for over three years now, upper uh, hamstring tendonitis, which is a very common injury. So we talk about that and how he's dealt with that. And we talk, obviously, quite a bit about his time working for Nike as well in retail and technical sales, and we talk a bit about the vapor flies and uh, other topics in the space of Nike as well. Of course, we talk about running philosophies and many other different things. So if you are a keen distance runner, I'm sure you will enjoy this podcast episode with Brian Livingston. Thank you once again. I also I always like to thank the subscribers at the start of the podcast episodes because you are the ones that keep the content sweat elite coming. To subscribe, you access the full episodes of all the podcasts, as well as all of the 450 plus articles on the Sweat Elite website, which is almost well, over three years of uh, research for the Sweat Elite team now. So this is just the preview. This is about the first half of the episode. Once the first half is is uh, finished, you can find the full episode of it on our website. You can either Google Sweat Elite Podcast or go to sweatelite.co slash podcast and find it there. And you can subscribe for just one US dollar per week, which is the cost of a coffee every few weeks. Some podcast players have the link to the full episode in the player, so you might be able to find it there. Some don't, uh, but that's another way to find it as well. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Brian Livingston. Okay, on the line, uh, I have uh, this evening Brian Livingston, who I've known for a little over 10 years now. Brian uh, spent quite a while working with Nike uh, in the retail space, digital operations, and technical representative as well. And Brian has been a runner for uh, most of his life, and I thought it would be awesome to have Brian on the podcast because he has a wealth of knowledge in the running world, and uh, there's a few topics I really wanted to talk to him about and share on the podcast. So thanks for joining, Brian. No worries. Thanks, mate. And uh, a fellow Aussie as well. That's right. So every time uh, Brian sees me or I give him a call, he very quickly calls me mate because we actually met in Australia where, where obviously I'm from and, and Brian's from, from the US but we, we met in Australia when you were over on the Gold Coast working with uh, Nike. Uh, I reckon your memory will serve better than mine here. What exactly were you doing? Of course I, I, know, I know what you were doing but maybe you can explain to the listeners what you were doing in Australia for a little while. Well, thanks, Matt. I'm a pioneer, and I uh, was able to have a pioneering experience of seven years in Australia, uh, you know, as a, as a, a true, tried-and-true runner for life. Uh, growing up in Los Angeles, it, uh, it wasn't the most conducive environment to uh, really explore the, the depths of the running that I wanted to do, and uh, studying abroad in Australia for a year made me fall in love with with, uh, with the place, and uh, I ended up uh, immigrating to Australia for, for seven years, got permanent residency, uh, taught for a few years, but yeah, ultimately ended up with, with Nike in, uh, in retail uh, um, uh, on, in Canberra, the Gold Coast, and a little bit of time in, in Melbourne. Yeah, and at the time... I think I would have met you in 2006 or seven, and you must yeah. have been doing some pretty quality training then because very shortly after that you 
ran all of your personal best times, which very quickly I'll go through them. You ran a, a 14.26 5K, a 29.31 10K. Correct me if I've got any of these wrong. A 66.26 half marathon and a 2.21 marathon, and they all came in 2008 and 2009. So have I got those right? You, you have, Matt, dead on. And, uh, yeah, uh, Australia was the, the breeding ground for all of those times, and a lot of those and, and a lot of hard sessions with, with you laid that foundation. So <laughs> thanks, mate. <laughs> I was uh, training for the 800 and 1500 metres at the time. So, but I do remember very clearly that 3K where we, where we clashed in the middle there, and you, you somehow outkicked me despite the fact that I was supposed to be a, a, have a bigger kick. But uh, <laughs> uh, I think we ran uh, around eight thirty-two or eight thirty-three that day on the Gold Coast. But uh, it was a it was a good battle. But uh, no, again, thanks so much for for joining. And uh, we we've been chatting uh, for quite a while now because we we've both spent a little bit of time in Ethiopia over the last um, year or two. And uh, now that you're based in in Berlin in Germany, we both ran the Berlin Marathon where we saw each other again a couple of months back. And you ran. Uh, 232? Yeah, 232. Yeah. 232 uh, and, and change. Yeah. And I guess this is a perfect little segue into talking about uh, where your uh, running has been. Uh, shortly after this, we'll talk about your time at, at Nike and what you were doing there and a bit of information there. But um, what has your running uh, looked like since those personal bests in 2008 and 2009? Because I know you spent a bit of time away from the sport? I don't know if it was entirely, but it'd be good to hear a bit about that. Yeah, it's interesting. We could devote a whole other podcast to it, but I actually became an amateur boxer for a couple of years right. after having a run-in with a professional uh, with a professional boxer. But um, yeah, it's after 2009, it's kind of a motley assortment of me coming back to running and having some decent performances, but then uh, suffering spate of injury but uh the changes seen to berlin's been nice uh to come back uh, uh, uh sorry to, to to come to uh, a new new country and uh just start training again with a new group um has re-enlivened my my spirit more than anything i have had a little bit of tendonitis in my my hamstring uh that's kind of limited the range of motion but uh i've just I, I've I've wanted to um, just get out and run so much. I've I've sort of allowed my I've, I've allowed myself to, to run with this injury, and uh, and and my body has found a way to do it. And uh, I I I, I mean, still keep the injury at bay, and I'm not a hundred percent over it yet. And as the muscle starts to come fully back online again, it's like teaching yourself how to walk again and uh, get everything to work together. But um, I feel like I'm on a good track now to start running uh, uh, healthy again, and hopefully looking at uh, some half marathons uh, next spring. Uh, and then maybe having a rematch next year in Berlin with you, mate. <laughs> There's actually a pretty good chance of that happening, I think. Um, what do you think the uh, – so, so last time I spoke to you, I visited you in, in Berlin a, a couple of weeks after the, the Berlin Marathon, and I, I asked you the question of, you know, are you going to go and try and target your – maybe lowering your 221 marathon personal best again? And you – I don't remember exactly what you said, but you, you were a little bit undecided about it, so – you know, fast forward. What is it? Six to eight weeks later. Now, how do you how do you feel about that? Or, or are you sort of just gonna stay fit? I know you're doing quite a lot of coaching, which we can talk about shortly. But do you, do you yeah. feel like you might head down that path to to really try and tackle those quick times again, or what do you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm I'm very philosophical about my running these years. I call them my encore years, but <laughs> it's kind of like I I exist in this realm between samurai warrior and Buddhist monk, where part of me very much wants to go after that me ten years ago that was running two twenty one, and part of me is just happy to run every day and coach and share my passion with others and really level them up to to, to new heights. 
ties. And I think the, the injury that I have often plays a factor in that when yeah. it's, when, when I don't feel inflamed, I'm running really well and I feel the samurai warrior. And when I do feel the inflammation, it's great that I have that Buddhist monk in me that can say, you know what? It's okay. Uh, to take a step back, take a rest, and focus your passion on improving others through coaching. That's a very good answer. <laughs> it's not overly uh, overly clear, but I do fully understand the frustration with injuries because I've mentioned on, on previous podcasts I suffered from an injury nowhere near as long as you have been suffering from yours, but I suffered from plantar fasciitis for about 10 weeks in the middle of this year and luckily just uh, got it sorted, I guess, in time to do enough training to run a Berlin Marathon in, in 2.35. Um, but I guess in the next couple of minutes, we can speak a bit more about that injury of yours because we spoke about it before this call and it was quite interesting and I think something that uh, many people could relate to and maybe uh, learn learn about because that tendonitis in your upper hamstring, uh, you've been able to run through and it's been interesting what's happened since it's basically almost healed itself now that you've you've had you've had some trouble coming back to running at full speed. So maybe you can talk a, a little bit about that before we talk a bit more about the the coaching side of things and and working at Nike. Sure. I mean, the thing about running is it's so simple, but it's so complex. Uh, it's, you know, it's this idea of one foot in front of the other as, fa- as fast as you can, but it really requires 100% of a term I use called agency, which is just the entire kinetic chain from the foot landing all the way up to the, all the way up your leg, to your hips, to your chest, to your head. Um, being smooth and you know the feeling of being in the zone and having a fluid stride you feel like you're on a tarzan rope being carried on air and there's nothing getting in the way of you and it's an amazing feeling but if there's any kind of disruption to that kinetic chain uh, in the uh, in the foot, if there's an Achilles issue uh, in the knee, in the hip, if any of the angles or geometry are off due to uh, due to a strain or impingement, you don't have that flow, and you know it 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 can be really detrimental to your spirit um uh, uh, even more so than your 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 biomechanics i think your biomechanics can always kind of find a way around it as as i've said with this injury i've been able to use my muscles in different ways and my body has found a way to to run but i just never in my head feel like i can be fully committed when we talk about this idea of samurai warrior like fully committed to the run and 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 ensconced and going fast i've always just had to hold back and these these inj- the, the injuries like like what i'm talking about of you know a minor Impingement or some latent chronic tendonitis, you can run through these, um, but they just never allow you to feel that sense of flow, that sense of being in the zone that I think all runners really love and cherish. Absolutely, no, that's very, very well put. And and you, and you said you've been dealing with this for for about three years. I, I have, yeah. I, I funnily enough experienced the injury on a long run where I tacked on Montefartlek, uh, where uh, the 90-minute portion felt good, the 60s felt good, the 30s I started to feel a tinge, and then when you go to the 15-seconders where it's supposed to be that 1,500-meter pace, I felt, the, I felt the pull or minor tear in the hamstring at that point, and it just has never really healed back despite stretching despite strength despite chiropractics uh it's just never kind of gotten itself back to its you know original original state and you know i i've contemplated looking at surgery or um looking at uh you know platelet therapy or cortisone shot um 
and this is going to kind of sound stupid, uh, but I've just never gone that route because I felt like I've never been really elite enough to warrant that kind of that kind of treatment and you're probably saying well come on take care of yourself but i always thought to myself if i do these things like a surgery or cortisone shot you know all of these are basically band-aids that can have repercussions on their uh, of their own and i have the luxury of not you know competing at a professional level that i can take the time to um you know off and not have to deal with the surgery in order to you know rescue a season or run a time to get a bonus uh, to you know put food on the table you know I, I running is recreational for me and so I've 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 just gone the natural route of just stretching and progressive um, treatment that way that's very patient because three years is a long time and I'm really surprised you never bit the bullet I mean you know, you've got faster times than me, and even after two and a half months of plantar fasciitis, I I bit the bullet and got a cortisone shot, which which actually ended up being the turning point for me. Um, now, now that's not to say that taking a cortisone injection for yourself would have fixed it, because from what I understand, cortisone can be a bit of a hit and miss. Um, it also can really depend on the, the the doctor and and how well he puts it in the exact right area. Um, but it, even though, uh, I guess, uh, just quickly on the plantar fasciitis, that that was the turning point for me. I, I, I actually still have it. It still lingers a little bit, but um, it sort of comes and goes. And, and it seems that it, whenever I'm, I, I warm it up and I do some light exercises and then do a bit of a jog, it, it pretty much goes away. Um, but yeah, that's really patient on your behalf to, to spend three years dealing with it. But I'm, I'm glad to hear that it's, it, it seems to have faded now. But you did say that you've had some trouble transitioning back to full speed. Yeah, I, it's just a, a, tra- a, a, a track runner, a true track runner. If you look at me run, I'm very bouncy. I have very um, high what we call extension or triple extension where you know I, I step all the way over my knee. I have a really high back kick. So I really put my muscles and tendons through a very um, uh, uh, um, ballistic range of motion. And that's that to me feels free and that to me makes me feel in my flow i can't kind of plod along i've got to be in that full extension stride and and but have but but trying to execute that stride uh pattern with the uh with with the tendonitis is a little a little hindering so it's about really getting that strength back so that i can uh really exercise that that full extension that makes me feel like i'm 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 running free yeah okay very interesting um well let's talk a little bit now about your coaching situation now so in in berlin you mentioned uh, about seven or eight minutes ago that uh, moving to berlin in many ways was was very motivating because you're around a new group um so i guess uh we spoke a little bit about this when i was in berlin but it would be good to hear on on the podcast about uh, which group you have joined and uh, I guess what more specifically uh, are, are you doing with the group? Yeah, I, uh, I am coaching Berlin Track Club. The funny story here is uh, prior to me uh, joining the Berlin Track Club in Portland, I was with another BTC, the Bowerman Track Club. So <laughs> I'm kind of able to keep a lot of my gear that says BTC on it because it's kind of interchangeable. And we've got this hashtag now that's that's called BTC Strong, where we've got to bring all the BTCs of the world together. Beijing Track Club, Berlin Track Club, uh, Bowerman Track Club, Bozeman Track Club, you name them. But uh, look, running is it running as we have seen with the NN team and Kipchoge and uh, Camel Wars success. It's a, it's it's a team sport. Absolutely. And for so long, we've thought of it as the the loneliness of the long distance runner, the the solitary run but in order to get better you really have to have a team behind you a team of runners and a, and a support team to get you to that next level and I never really had that before mm-hmm. even running as a pro in Los Angeles for uh, for for a Nike team we still were very spread 
spread out and never trained together. We only would come together to race. Um, and in Berlin, uh, this group that I'm with really prides itself on getting together at least once a week to do a session together. Uh, and sometimes we're together three times a week uh, to do um, uh, sessions uh, in strength, running, long runs, etc. And just I think that has really helped to uh, make me feel connected to Berlin, a new, a new, a new town, and it's just reinvigorated my my running to be able to to share my passion through coaching, and uh, you know just the energy of a energy of a session. Uh, I, you've been to Ethiopia, and you you know the sound of uh, their drills when their feet hit the dirt at the same time. It becomes uh, hypnotic when you train together in the, in their group and everyone is on the same breathing and stride rhythm and i try to achieve the same thing here in berlin bringing those learnings uh here to say hey when you're in the same breathing rhythm when you're in the same stride rhythm when you're making the same sound man you can uh you can uh channel your energy in really phenomenal ways and that's what the africans are so good at I think. Yeah, they, they are. They, they are. You know, you look at a Kipchoge. It's less like he's running and more like he's surfing. And yeah. what I mean to say is, like, he is fa- he's like dropping into a wave and he's just riding that wave. There's no tension. There's no anxiety. Uh, he's no he's somehow f- cruising. He's found this energy that he's floating on. Yeah. No, it's so true. I've seen a few Instagram stories of yours lately, and there seems to be a pretty big group there training with you. And there's also been quite a few quite top athletes from Germany joining in, whether they've been talking or taking groups. Um, I'm forgetting the girl's name, but there's a top middle distance runner that was there last week. Um, but yeah, it looks like a, a very positive environment that you've uh, found yourself in there in Berlin, which is awesome. And there's quite a few pretty good runners in, in the Berlin area as well. There are a lot. Uh, so that that runner is Kathy Grands. Kathy Grands uh, represented right. Germany in Doha recently in the fifteen hundred, and was the University Games champion recently in Naples. And uh, but what you said, Matt, is correct. It, there's it, it's not so much that there's elite runners, but there's aspirational runners, mm. and and I think this is a new new hot hot term right now. Um, uh, in in the running community, where I think for 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 the last couple of years, there's been a real focus on you know the running crew, uh, the runner that uh, loves to run for a social experience, and um, you know they 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 are competitive, but comp but competition and running personal best isn't necessarily at the core of who they are. It's more about the socialness of the run. Yeah. Whereas I think the aspirational runner, they see the social aspect as a way to um, enhance performance and bring them to the the next level and for this they're aspirational about running around running personal best and there's a lot of runners in Berlin that are of that ilk and are looking for people of the same ilk uh, to to get together and go after go after personal best yeah awesome no, good to hear. And I mean, transitioning to a, a new country, I've, I've done it a couple of times, is is often a challenge and, and you haven't spent... Uh, how long have you been in Berlin for now? When did you leave the, the US? Uh, yeah, it's, we're at the six-month mark. Yeah, so that's, yeah, that's back in June. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's around the time it got pretty challenging for me when I, I moved to, to Europe from Australia in 2011. So it's, uh, it's, it's very... Uh, it, it's awesome that you've found yourself in an environment like that um, otherwise, it can get a little challenging with the with the ch- the culture change. But um, yeah. so you you so as I mentioned in the little intro, you you're a former employee of Nike. You spent quite a uh, quite some time working with Nike. You worked in in retail, digital operations, 
uh, you were working as a technical representative as well. Um, it would be really good to hear a little bit more about your time at Nike. And uh, I guess many people are probably already thinking right now, I wonder if uh, Brian knows much about the, the vapor flies and what the future is. <laughs> now, I don't, know sure. if you, I don't know if you do, but if you do, it would be awesome to hear anything that you know. Um, yeah, let's, let's talk about it. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I can. I, 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 I don't. I don't know. One thing that we say at Nike, we never say no. We always say not yet. So <laughs> the future is always uh, bright and with possibilities. But um, yeah, I think just to start, um, I was a technical representative for Nike, or what the term that we use is uh, uh, called an Eakin, which is Nike spelled backwards. So this idea that you know the brand back to back to front, yeah. but also. So um, that you put the that you put the customer first. That Nike is about uh, people, and you think about the first uh, the, the you know the, the early days of Nike. It was uh, Phil Knight selling shoes out of his car at track meets. Phil Knight was the original Eakin, uh, uh, meeting people and uh, getting their trust. Uh, um, by running with them and uh, delivering authentic, incredible product. Absolutely. And uh, that's always been at the heart of Nike. And as, uh, as, as Eakins, that's kind of the, the mission that we've always uh, attempted to drive is get people to, to understand that we're uh, a company of athletes serving athletes. Absolutely. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, just quickly, I, I've been, uh, I'm doing a little bit of traveling around Europe at the moment for a little bit of, a little bit for work and a little bit for, for leisure, but I, I've actually spent a bit of today and yesterday listening to bits and pieces of Shoe Dog. So it's funny when you just mentioned, uh, Shoe Dog is the, is the audio book about the, the beginnings of Nike. And it's, it's yeah. funny when you just said sort of Phil Knight was at the track meets, um, uh, selling shoes out of the out of the I can't remember exactly if it was a car or, or whatever but yeah I've been I've been reading a bit of uh, of the book and it's 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 a it's a, it's a it's an interesting story how it all got started I mean we won't go too far down that path because I want to hear more about your experience but um, yeah. it was certainly a story of perseverance how how Nike did get um, I get lifted off the ground but uh, but yeah uh, you spent uh, how long with with Nike overall. <laughs> Thirteen years. So I will say that I'm not currently employed with Nike, uh, and so um, yeah, I uh, all of my opinions are my own. I'm not a spokesperson for Nike, and all of these opinions are my own. But uh, I will. Abs- I'm, I'm passionate about sharing my my experience there, and can definitely talk to kind of the core spirit of of the company that uh, you know I talked about this idea of athletes serving athletes, and I think the other big strength of, of Nike that we want to get into the guts of today is this is is their innovation, mm-hmm. and I think what's unique about Nike's innovation strategy is that. It thinks of innovation in terms of a triad, meaning that you have at the center innovation, but you also have this idea of innovation being tied to aesthetics and emotion. So think about this triangle of innovation, aesthetics, and emotion. And Nike has always really prided itself on saying, hey, the product has to uh the product has to work. Yes, it's got to be innovative, but it's also got to look good and it also has to deliver on an emotion mm-hmm. because if you're not delivering on a feeling and an emotion and you're not really uh, – then, then you're not truly serving the athlete if you're not uh, delivering against an emotional need. So the idea of – I want to go. Uh, I want to go fast, right? And there's this emotion around fast, the feeling of being a samurai warrior. Well, the innovation can be the innovation can be springy, right? Uh, we can make we can mo- make foam really springy and responsive, um, and uh, you know, aesthetically, we can deliver something that looks very streamlined and almost like a like like a like a an arrow, right? So you look at the the the, the four the four percent or the next percent, and they look like you know this uh, it's, it's kind of tapered arrow, uh, 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 or, or like a jet, you know the, yeah, the, that they they really are they, they really are able to to capture that that essence of innovation, aesthetics, and emotion, um, more more so than I think any of the other brands out there. Now, I'm biased. 
but uh, I just I feel like we have always done a great job in that in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. Especially over the last few decades, at least. It sounds like Nike had a bit of a rough. I'm only saying this because, I, as I said, I just listened to the the Shoe Dog book. It sounds like in the beginning it was maybe slightly different, but at least in the last two or three decades, it's absolutely been the leader, at least in the in the in the running world. I would say, at least from my point of view, and I've I've I have had a couple of different sponsorships with with different brands, but um, but yeah. So okay, and and. Maybe just briefly, you could describe sort of. You mentioned that you work in retail, digital operations, and as a technical rep. Um, I guess what what were the difference between some of those roles, and what were the more specific things that you were doing? Of course, I saw you on the Gold Coast um, uh, at the time. It, it it appeared to me like you were really trying to grow that that retail space at that uh, large, very large shopping mall, um, Nike store at the Pacific Fair on, on the Gold Coast. Um, but uh, I guess when you moved back to the U.S. in digital operations and technical representative, what were you more specifically doing with Nike there? Well, at, at the core of it, I've just always sold Nike. So whether it's been in retail operations or digital operations, I've always been on the side of how do we bring Nike closer to consumers in the most premium way, whether sure. it's through our through through the website. Uh, by having the best imagery and copy and accessibility or whether it's in stores through the best merchandising and the best service to deliver that uh, authenticity and credibility that's, you know, in our in our roots. Um, Because as I as I said before, you know, I think the product looks so great it's it's kind of a double-edged sword because a lot of people that are attracted to the brand um, because of the way it looks and uh, but don't necessarily know uh, the performance behind it and yeah. how these shoes actually make you a better uh, a better athlete I've always had this mantra of tools not toys I think a lot of people can get into fitness and um, be initially inspired by uh, by a Nike product, which is great. Uh, but emotion has to create motion in the end. So if you're, you know, you might get that great pair of shoes and they look great cutting a dashing figure at Starbucks, but it not using that product to actually go out and enhance your life through movement, I think, you know, that, that product vain so uh it really is about getting getting customers to understand how the product looks great but it really is innovative to make you make you better um we have a a a mantra uh that's called nate uh that uh was introduced a couple years ago called nature amplified at nike which is this idea of we try to um, extend the range of, of human ability and our, all of our design, all of our aesthetic, um, all of our, all of the emotion around marketing is really designed to take you who you are and basically extend your range through the product by making it a natural extension of you. And I think that's a good foreshadowing when we get into talking about next percent is this isn't something that is a, you know, a, a necessarily a mechanical advantage. It really is when worn, pro- when worn properly and, 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 worn, and, and when you're running with um, great triple extension mechanics, for instance, this shoe really just extends the range of that, of that capability. Uh, uh, and, and that's something that is really, uh, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's something that's really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's, that's really interesting. Um, so you, I mean, most people are really focused around the question of, um, you know, you, you kind of just described it very well because you sort of went around the question to some extent, but answered it at the same time. But many people ask the question of like, do, do these safe applies, are they kind of are they cheating like you know are they actually making people run faster like what can you say to someone that asks the very basic question like that i know you probably don't like that question but if someone does say to you well what do you think like am i actually going to run a two two thirty marathon in 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 new balance and then a a 229 just by putting on the vapor flies is that how it works or or or, you know what would you say to that question if someone asked you like what's your what's your opinion Yeah, uh, that's a great question. You know, I think all, all in, in total that 
the Vaporfly has been able to democratize performance. And what I mean by that is it's been able to level up the performance of a, a, a beginner runner that uh, – uh, you know, has been running in kind of standard shoes and heel to toe kind of format. Um, the shoe can, even for a heel to toe runner, can still give you a, a more of a cushion bounce and definitely can allow you to feel fresher in the days, the days afterward, um, and, and can, and can reduce your time in that. And then for uh, a semi novice to elite runner, uh, that can run at that more forward geometry, it can absolutely improve their performance improve their performance into those you know elite elite kind of times that you're talking about i think the analogy that i like to use is uh, formula one race car driving like if yes. i got in a formula one race car i could put my pet i could put my foot on the pedal and could you know drive 400 meters with it and i yeah i i, I don't know how fast i would go uh, and I don't think it would be really that effective as, say, Michael Schumacher in the car, really understanding all the intricacies, the geometry of the vehicle and how that vehicle responds to the road. He can truly maximize the performance of of that shoe. So um, I think, uh, you know, that's. Uh, 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 there's some there's some education that I think um, needs to happen with runners to understand, you know, how can they truly maximize their use of the of the next percent, and how can they actually use other shoes, Nike or other brands that are of different geometries, different offsets, um, and also just improving your running form um, to ultimately get the most get the most out of that out of that shoe um so i i I guess you know kind of i'm i I, i'm a purist and i i like to think about you know get you know you, you if you're running in the 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 next percent which is like the formula one shoe um you you, you want to be at. You want to be able to fully express the performance of that shoe by, you know, being forward in your geometry and really, you know, poppy in your stride like a Kipchoge um, to get the most to get the most out of it. But in no way do I want to diminish the performance uh, um, enhancement that uh, it has given to your entry level and novice runners. That you know. They, that hey, could can the next percent for them be the unlock uh, for them to become more focused and more aspirational in their running when they see that they're capable of running faster? Yeah, no, that's a very good answer. And something that you mentioned before, I can fully agree with that. Um, I'm definitely noticing because I, I, I've recently invested in a pair of next percents and I had the four percents uh, beforehand. I am noticing that I'm recovering quite well after using them. I, I mainly only race in them, but but that. That cushion, of course, of you could probably give a more technical term. That's absolutely helping my recovery, and it's it's not putting so much force through my my legs. And that's that's very, it's 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 interesting, and it's 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 like a I guess it's something that's not really marketed at all, but it's 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 something that most people that I'm talking with notice as well. Like I did a half marathon personal best a couple of weekends ago, and the day after I was feeling pretty pretty fine. <laughs> no, I don't think I would normally feel like that. So that's. That's uh, that's obviously a huge bonus to to the shoes as well. Sure, you know you jogged a good thought there, and and that is that uh, you know when I was running competitive times, uh, you know back in two thousand eight or nine, we didn't have next percent. It was uh, it was Zoom Marathon, it was Streak, and then later the Lunar Racer, which we just thought was the savior because here was a shoe that actually had some sponginess to it that gave a little bit of uh, gave a little bit back to you. But before that, you know the foam was pretty firm and you had to be the spring you yeah. had to you know bounce along the road and you know your calves killed you and you know you had all kinds of, of, of soreness after after the run then it took you four weeks to recover from yeah. from a marathon so you know I I have I, I have a profound respect for for the shoe and 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 what it's able to do so um, that's why I, I I really just reserve it for you know my my fastest race days and I 
I try to get other, and I try to get my other, other runners to understand that there are so many other shoes that, uh, can be beneficial to, to your training, um, that can be more, and more conducive to the types of training that you're doing, um, before ever, you know, um, going to the, the, the next, the next percent that, you know, learn how to, learn how to drive the, the, the Toyota Prius and the <laughs> Honda Civic before you drive the formula, before you drive the Formula One car. Because in doing that, you just respect the Formula One car so much more when you've been able to go through all of those, those different, those different progressions and those different types of shoes. Yeah. For sure. Actually, you yeah. just jogged the thought. Oh, sorry. Is there anything more you want to add there? Uh, that's it. Okay. Uh, you, you've sparked a, a jogged the thought for me. Um, there is a rumor, you may or may not know the answer, but I thought I'd ask. There's a rumor that the, the next percents and the four percents only last around 200 miles, 300 kilometers before the, uh, what is it, Zoom X and the carbon plate, the carbon plate is somewhat um, uh, cooked. <laughs> um, do you know if that's true? Yeah, you know, I've heard that too. I just going back to my tech rep days, you know, uh, all shoes have in their foam a term that we use called durometer. And durometer is just a term used to describe the softness and durability, softness and durability of that foam. And so typically shoes with, you know, a softer, more spongy durometer, uh, tend to, you know, fatigue a little bit, uh, a little bit more. Uh, but I can't, you know, I can't say for sure what a specific mileage figure is. And then you also have the, the carbon plate inside too that acts as, you know, kind of this moderator to, uh, to the shoe that, um, you know, doesn't break down, uh, and still, you know, maintains its integrity throughout, throughout the life of, throughout the life of the shoe. So, uh, I, I imagine that he, that, that the, 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 the sponginess breaks down, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think the other thing, too, is, you know, you go to Kenya and Ethiopia and you see these guys running in shoes that are five, ten years old with a foam falling apart. And it just gives you a whole different perspective on what durability is. And, you know, after going going to these places, I keep my shoes for, you know, uh, uh, 700, 800 uh, uh, Ks easily before I think about throwing them away. Yeah, for sure. No, thanks for sharing that. And I think I'd like to segue now into a topic that's also, uh, I guess, somewhat technical. And when I approached you to ask if you wanted to come on the podcast, because I honestly believe you're um, probably the person that I know that knows the most (laughs) about running in all different uh, regards and aspects. One thing that I asked you, I said, do you want to talk about any sort of tech tech, uh, uh, gadgets or, or applications that um, people could maybe learn about that could help them in running. And your response was interesting. Uh, you, you basically said, uh, and correct me if I'm maybe not wording this well, you said you're not a huge fan of, 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 of tracking data too much, of sort of technical advances. You like to keep it quite old school. And then you, you forwarded me a really interesting article that I think we can talk a little bit about. Um, the article is a bit about Herb Elliott, and, uh, who is... Uh, the Olympic champion and previous world record holder of the mile and 1500 meters and his coach, Percy Serity, both from Australia, who both had a, uh, who they had, a, a, I guess, a brutal, you could say, training regime. Um, so let's talk about this because I am also a believer that too much tech can be a bit dangerous. Uh, tracking too much can result in you not running so freely anymore. Um, but yeah, I, I was really interested in this article that you sent me. So I think we should discuss a bit more about that. Sure. Uh, you know, as, 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 as a, as a coach, I think, you know, I, you're always torn between kind of two, two sides, right? You, you, you want to, um, respect the science and abide by the science of performance. And it's absolutely, it's absolutely valid lactic levels, VO2 max, et cetera. But then there's also this other side about the, the spirit of, of, of running and coaching that and the, and, 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 and that's really an unknown. And, uh, and, and, 
you know, athletes respond differently, differently to both. But what I love about Saruti is really this guy was uh, the Leonardo da Vinci of, of running. You know, he really understood how everything was connected, um, that breathing was connected to the tides of the sea, that just as the tide comes in and the tide goes out, so does oxygen come in and carbon dioxide goes out, that he understood that movement of humans was very similar to a horse, and that just as a horse can amble, trot, canter, and gallop, a human can do the same through going different breathing rhythms and triple extension mechanics to go from a jog to an all-out sprint. And he just kind of took himself out of kind of the tech atmosphere and just put himself in, you know, he, he took his he took his runners down to Port Sea, just south of Melbourne, and really just put his runners into the most kind of Spartan environments where they could just let go of the city and the trappings of technology around them and just let their bodies happen. And this was really the unlock for somebody like Herb Elliott, who was really a free spirit at the at uh, in in his day. You know, didn't really um, fit the mold of you know the the. Of, of a technical runner. He was actually smoking uh, a cigarette at the 1956 games in Melbourne when he was watching some of the finals, um, but knew in his mind that he could probably be a great athlete if he really, if he really is not to it, but also had a great coach that could really help to articulate his spirit and, uh, and, and, uh, um, bring out the best in his his ability, which is what Saruti was able to do. And he's just somebody that I've always respected, and I feel like a lot of coaches are kind of coming back to Saruti's ideas um, as uh, start to see that technology can be somewhat limiting, and that analysis can be paralysis. Uh, that uh, there's that that there's you know the mindfulness and the the kind of freeness that he introduced to running is ju- has just as much merit as the science. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the quotes that you pulled out of it for me to focus on, I guess, is I'll, I'll say it out. Um, the main thing about Purse Elliot said uh, Herb Elliot, who is the athlete, um, and, and Purse, who is the coach. Uh, is that he coaches your spirit. This is the key to championship running. Herb is working on a personal theory that the body itself may only need two months training to get fit. The rest of the time, you're building up your spirit. Call it guts or some inner force so that it will go to work for you in a race without you even thinking about it. So Letting go and just letting your body happen, yeah. Yeah, and so this article uh, is from uh, Vault, uh, si.com slash vault the amazing herb elliot and there's 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 actually plenty of quotes that i'd like to read out loud but it might get a little bit boring but yeah i mean some of them are just about how he 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 you know drags his athletes up these just ridiculous sand dunes um for for, for hours hours on end seemingly and then they have to head over to a freezing cold uh beach where they, uh, sorry water where they have to spend some time in there and then that they're just basically yeah, spending <laughs> doing this absolutely brutal training regime, which, which of course I know about, you know about, because um, I'm, I grew up in Australia and you spent some time there. But yeah, it is it is something that I've thought a bit about, especially since spending quite a bit of time in Ethiopia and Kenya, and how little they track their data there, in a sense of how little they focus on paces, how little they focus on heart rate, and how much they focus on how they feel and. Um, and I think it's, of course, Kenyans and Ethiopians have other factors that are, are working uh, advantages for them in a sense of, you know, their genetics and their uh, where they live at high altitude. But I think this is a very overlooked factor, in my opinion, about how they are running so free and how they're, in a way, they're, they're, and this this also, I think, links to, to stress levels because they're, they're never worried so much about their paces and their heart rates and, and are they on pace and is their heart rate too high today compared to what it was yesterday at this same pace on their recovery run. There's just none of that over there. And I think this is a very similar sort of, you know, realm that we're speaking about from, from this article about um, Herb Elliott. And, and, I'm actually, I think I'm pronouncing his name incorrectly, Saruti, Percy Saruti. But yeah, it's certainly interesting. 
Yeah. You know, and I think this is something that runners are craving today too, especially aspirational runners, because I think we have, um, we are, as I said, in this area, uh, uh, era of tracking and having every single metric available to us. Uh, and it can be just a breath of fresh air to have a coach say, Hey, just throw away the watch and just really focus on just training your spirit and giving you, you know, the, the, the dopamine and the serotonin for your, for your spirit to just let you, let you loose. And I think that's something that, that I as a coach really, um, you know, uh, uh, try to amplify as much as much as possible because I, I see a lot of coaches that have a lot of great technical expertise and I've, I'm 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 lucky to have uh, have had that too um, you know having been at the Institute of Sport in Australia um, and and seeing that whole side but I've just always felt the unlock has been around the the training of the spirit that uh, Saruti was so popular for yeah. I think a lot of people have a hard time, though, transitioning from being very data-focused to running freely. So it's probably a difficult question for you to answer because there's probably not one one uh, answer here. But if some athlete does come to you that you can clearly see is very, very obsessed in a way about tracking their paces, they're, they're getting stressed about their heart rate being too high on a recovery run and why can't they you know, average the same one-kilometer rep pace in one kilometer repeats this week than last week. I guess, what would you say to an athlete like that? Or what would you try and do? Sorry, that's probably a difficult question to answer, but, but what's, what would, what would you try and, how would you help them? No, it's fine. Cause I, I, I have an athlete like this and I think, look, their feelings are valid. And I think as a coach, you have to meet them where they're at and say, Hey, you know what? Your feelings are, are valid. I get where you're coming from. I know that you're, you're really, um, set on these, these metrics, but honestly, pay, uh, running, uh, you know, is, it, it takes time to get good at and the, uh, you're, uh, uh, greatness is not a metric all the time and 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 speed or quickness is not always a a, a metric it's a mindset and you've got to be able to have if you're going to be a runner a sense of delayed gratification and know that if you are you know just at the end of the day despite what the heart rate says despite what the the pace says if you're making a commitment to getting out every day and out and being truly curious about what you can do with your body every every day um you're gonna get you're you're gonna get better and hopefully that kind of that that kind of talk um trumps the 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 analysis and the anxiety that's going on that's going on in their 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 head but you know i think one thing that comes along with this analytics is um you know i got it'll allow me to have the answer now 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 and that's just not running running is delay is a delayed gratification it takes a long time to get to get good at especially the marathon you know you need a lot of time on legs um i say 50,000 kilometers in order to start um, really recording good times in the marathon yeah that's uh that's 10 years of 100 kilometers a week roughly (laughs) but yeah yeah, you you did tell me that I I, want to briefly talk about Berlin only for a minute or minute or so but I I, I suffered from I mentioned on a previous podcast I ran 235 I, I suffered from severe cramping in the final well, I started cramping at 24K, but quite severe at about 36. Um, and you, you, you sent me a, some very interesting resources about this and how, uh, you know, the, the, now I, I think actually you're best to explain this, but the pace of 421 per kilometer for, for myself. And you were asking me the question of how much running have I done at that pace? And I realized I had done very, very little. Um, and maybe you could briefly talk about, about that because I've been doing a lot more lately at that and and now I'm feeling a lot more confident that the cramps won't return for the next one. Sure. You know, there's this idea of, of, of time on legs 
that is critical to being able to tackle the long distances effectively. And uh, this, there's there's some really interesting research and and uh, work um, done by um, uh, in a in a book. Uh, I actually um, some Australians. So Tony Benson is one of the authors, and I can't remember off the top of my head who the other one is. But there's some great there's some great tables in there that show um, that for ten thousand to marathon, you need about fifty thousand kilometers at about four twenty pace to be able to run a successful marathon. So when I say successful, um, I'm obviously talking to a little. Sub-elite, so we're talking, you know, the 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 two twenty, low two twenty times and, and below. Um, that this time on legs is is crucial to building up the mitochondria, building up the cardiovascular um, system, building up, you know, your your even your anaerobic capacity. Um, this is this is crucial to laying the foundation. And one of the reasons why the Kenyans and Ethiopians are successful runners is they're achieving these volumes at uh, 17, 18, 19 years of age, whereas the average Western kid, you and I, um, who are driven to school and, you know, don't have, you know, aren't, aren't as mobile, we're not reaching these kinds of volumes till probably our late twenties. And then to your point too, yeah. Yeah, and and to your point too, not certainly being done at those low four four twenty paces. So yeah, um, now, this this is critical. Absolutely, and I realize that even though I've been running middle distance between, so I'm thirty two now. Even though I've been running middle distances between sort of seventeen and twenty six, I didn't do a lot of running at that pace because I was focusing focusing on the eight hundred meters, and even my long run was at like four uh, four minutes per kilometer, and, and more or less everything else was faster. So I realized yeah. that I'd done very little running at this pace and I've done a lot more lately and I was able to to, to do a couple of very long runs lately at, at not too far off my goal marathon pace at you know closer to 3.50 to 4 minutes per kilometer at uh, a marathon distance and I haven't cramped. So I'm hoping that in Valencia in two weeks' time I'm, I'm able to finish it without, without cramping. But I, I appreciated what you sent through. It was super interesting. I thought it might be good to quickly talk about that. Sure. Yeah, because I think the strength from time on legs is one part of it. And then the other part of it is the the piece that I sent you around maintenance of critical power. And this is the ability to, you know, when you run out of glycogen in your muscles, um, which is typically when people start to bonk, um, how can you still maintain some sense of power and speed? And it can be very difficult because after you've gone through your glycogen stores, you become dependent on your fat stores and a lot of runners um, aren't used to running on fat and don't do the type of training to deplete their systems of, of glycogen to practice transitioning to fat and running on fat and so when they start to transition to this source in a marathon you can get dizzy you can feel like you have to stop you can bonk you can cramp um, whereas the runner that is trained to transition to fat can you know maybe suffer a couple of seconds um, per kilometer but it's not a drastic decline in um, in, in power output yeah. No, perfect segue to this final thing I wanted to talk about in our last 10 minutes on this recording is the is the uh basically what you started talking about now. You forwarded me an article written by a uh, famous running author, I guess, Alex Hutchinson. He published the article in July this year. Uh the title is The Real Reason Marathon Has Hit the Wall. A new study finds that your critical speed threshold drops in the last third of a marathon, which may explain why the distance produces so many blow-ups and the yeah let's talk a bit more about that because that is really interesting many people don't know why they hit a massive wall at 30 to 40 kilometers <laughs> um, yeah despite despite fueling and all of the the, the uh, mortons uh, and all of the the great innovation in in that regard yeah um yeah i ran the new york it's, marathon it's it- a couple of weeks ago sorry just quickly and uh, I ran it as a, yeah. a, a. I was actually over there for for, for work, and I, I ran it as a training run and ran at, at about four minutes per kilometer. Ran two forty eight, and at the end there was a. I, I actually met two people walking out of the exit that both tried to run 
2.30 and both finished very close to me. So they completely blew up and ran. They both ran. So two completely separate people. They didn't even know each other. And I, I wasn't speaking to them at the same time. But they both went through halfway in 1.15 and finished in 2.48, which is obviously a second half of, what is that, almost 1.30. or No, it's 1.33. So... And they didn't know. They just they. I said, "Did you you know? Did you fuel? Did you did you take gels and, and carbohydrates throughout?" And, and they they both said yes. So uh, yeah. yeah. So so we briefly spoke about this before we started recording, but let's definitely talk about it again. You know what is the? There is no one answer, but what are people? What can people do to try and prevent prevent this? Yeah, you know, it's just it, it's it's what. Uh, you know, Shakespeare said, uh, death and the marathon are the great levelers, right? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. there's, there's this point that we all get to at the 30 kilometer mark where you run out of carbohydrate, you run out of glycogen. And you've got to be able to train your body to run on fats. This is my, this is my theory. I think even with a great fueling strategy, um, you can maybe stave off the, uh, the, the, um, depletion of carbohydrate a little bit longer, but I think there just comes a point where your body, you know, it, your digestive tract is kind of uh, uh, put on hold to deliver power to your muscles, and you're not able to get, you know, despite despite taking in gels, you're not able to 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 get the the full efficacy of them. And this is where you've got to train your body to burn fat. And uh, analogy was given uh, in commentary on a marathon a few years ago of the body. Um, essentially having two sources of energy, a glass of water and a glass of ice, the water being carbohydrates and the ice being fat. Now you stick a a straw in the water and it's very readily available. You can slurp that up pretty quick and this is the main source of fuel for runners. But as soon as that water is out, the straw needs to go into the ice and you try to drink from a glass full of ice, your lips pucker, you squeeze as much as you can just to get a few drops and so if you don't have a little bit of heat in that glass uh to to prime to prime some melting to give you some energy um you're you're out of gas essentially and this is what runners need to train themselves how to do they need to learn how to tap into that fat store tap into the fat stores because that ice is full of energy it's just dense and hard to get at but if you can do runs uh i you know sometimes over two and a half three hours to where you're totally getting rid of your carbohydrates and you're depending on fat you can get, I feel like this can help you in a marathon for when you do get to these points where you're out of glycogen, the transition to fat is not as arduous and, uh, and, and you can more seamlessly transition with maybe a couple of seconds, uh, uh, um, dropped off per kilometers than totally going downhill and, and bonking or having to stop for a few minutes to get your composure. Yeah, for sure. And it takes a lot of time. It doesn't happen overnight or in a month or maybe even in a year. This training takes a long time. But of course, even in a matter of a month or two, you can definitely improve upon it. Um, so the you know the conclusions of this article and basically your, your own additional advice here... Is and I'm, I'm trying to basically uh, reel out the answers here to try and um, yeah. other other than other than just fueling better, like taking in carbohydrates before and during the race. Um, you mentioned very long runs where you're completely depleting your carbohydrates and having to run through them. Um, yeah, yeah. What else? I mean, it's almost like a in this article. I'm not going to obviously read it out because it's quite a long read, but there there seems to be a reference to anaerobic capacity as well, and maybe training that a little bit. And I know that Canova is a fan of that as well. He does some short hill sprints in with most of the elite guys. Um, but yeah, what else is there that people can do to try and avoid this this very popular uh, hated wall? 
Well, uh, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, Maddie. And you're the perfect candidate because you have the 1500 meter speed of an elite athlete. And a lot of runners don't understand that actually being fast contributes to your economy. So the fact that you're a sub 350 guy in the 1500 means that a four minute K feels like is 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 the is nothing to you yeah. uh, a 330 is it feels like a walk in the park to you and so for that you've got um you 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 actually have an improved economy so the faster you're able to run uh, over the short distances it makes the slower paces over the long distance feel that much easier this is why i tell a lot of my guys on my squad hey before you even attack the marathon right i need need to see a sub I need to see a sub 350 in the 1500 I need to see uh, uh, under 830 in the 3k I need to see four you know sub 1430 in the 5k and sub 30 in the 10k and or the sub 31 in the 10k once you have these times the 320k pace and below just feels easier mm-hmm. And yeah, you can, you, you have, you have that anaerobic capacity and that ability to maintain that critical speed later in the race when you really should be running your faster, your faster miles. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay. So there's a, there's a 35 year old Peter listening to this. Peter doesn't have much of a background in the shorter distances, but he is a, he is, you know, he's got a two forty. I'm just hypothetically making someone up here. He's run a, he's run a two forty marathon and he's, he's suffering from, from, from slowing down quite a bit in the final five kilometers of most of most marathons, what would you say to him? Would you say maybe it's time to to work on some anaerobic training as well? I mean, of course, one of your suggestions is we need to do some 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 runs where you're depleting your carbohydrates. So the, the long runs where you you may be starting with no carbs or you're, or you're you're at least ending with no carbs and having to run through it for a while. But on the anaerobic front and the speed, what would you sort of what would you say to someone like this, Peter? Yeah, spot on. Peter's got to learn how to burn fat, but then on the anaerobic front, he's got uh, there's there there has to be uh, at least one speed session a week where we're getting out and doing uh, some quick four hundreds around the track to develop that anaerobic capacity. And then again, I think for the spirit for for the spirit angle. So going back to Saruti, I think the ability to just run fast and let your inner animal out, you know, is is so important to the uh, to to the psyche of of a runner. You know, I think we get so caught up in marathon training with this idea of oh I've got to knock out this one hour run and we will just go and run in a park at the same pace. And it's like an extension of your work. If you think about you not I punch in, you punch out. And then you punch in and punch out for a one-hour run in a park. Whereas you've got to get out of that mindset and do and, and, and do do sand do do and do two hundred meter repeats just to give you that 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 uh, um, that yeah that, that animalistic quality that we all have when we were when when we were chasing food you know uh, uh, that, all that that's still with us and we've got to be able to that out yeah absolutely Brian thanks. So much for joining today. Um, we've gone a little bit over the hour now, which is where I try to wrap up the podcast. But um, I really appreciate sharing all of your knowledge on this podcast. I'm sure people will take definitely take a few things from it. Um, but is there anything else that you would like to to, to share? I know uh, actually, actually, one thing I, I would want to ask. Sorry, um, coaching people like the sound of what some of the advice you've given today. Do you do you, do you coach people online, or is it sort of only in in Berlin? I do. I, I do coach online via um, correspondence over you know various platforms. I can make adjustable programs. So if you are interested in getting in touch with me, the best is uh, through my Instagram. It's uh, at b livin b l i v i n, uh, and uh, yeah, 
And it's uh, it's it's been a pleasure talking to you, uh, Matt. And uh, yeah, for all your listeners out there, I hope uh, you can think more, believe more, do more, and become more. <laughs> awesome way to finish up. I'll put your Instagram link in the show notes so people know how to contact you. Thanks again, Brian, and we will speak again soon, no doubt. And I hope we we clash at Berlin Marathon next year. <laughs> yes, that'd be great. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> Thanks, Brian.